Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva, a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the Mid-Atlantic region that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I'll be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva is a little piece of heaven that has beaches, majestic ponies that roam some of those beaches, tax-free shopping, one of the best children's hospitals in the world, and home to our current president in the United States. Today's episode is a little different because I'm covering a more well-known case, and it did garner quite a bit of national coverage at the time, but the brutality is unspeakable. This case shows that danger can hide everywhere, even in the bright sun of a hot beach, and this is, so far, the most graphic case that I've covered. Ocean City, Maryland is much like any other resort town that you can find up and down the East Coast. In Ocean City, to the west, you have the Chesapeake Bay, and to the east, you have the mighty Atlantic Ocean. And it only takes a relatively short time to walk from the east to the west of Ocean City, so you're surrounded by water, with the smell of salt and the feel of sand everywhere. And I do mean everywhere. With little shops and independent restaurants, a stone's throw, from anywhere. Accommodations can vary, very or more moderate hotels than some that might not be quite so nice, but usually most of the accommodations are very, very nice. And then you have condos too. And in these condos, we'll find the answers to one of the most gruesome crimes to ever take place on the Eastern Shore. Before I begin this story, I do want to say that I mean no disrespect to any parties involved. I have obtained facts for this case through all publicly available sources. In some cases, personal observations about the area may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I've gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, or time delays, such as there are further updates after the publication of the episode. And as a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various types of instances. And to repeat, I must say, that this episode will be one of the more graphic that I've covered and will probably be one of the most graphic that I ever cover. I will try to limit the descriptions to the minimum of what we need to know. And I do want to say some aspects can be considered truly horrifying. And what we need to remember is the victims deserve dignity and respect and I will do my best to present the information in that way. It's amazing sometimes how a memory will just come from out of the blue when you see something or hear something or even smell something that reminds you of it. 
Have you ever thought too about where you're standing or even where you're staying? The person in front of you in line, who stood there before? Who stood where you're standing there in line? What about the building across the street? Did anything ever happen there? What about the building you're in? I think today we tend to live in a sterilized world with some of the grime scrubbed away to make us forget some of the horrors that can really happen. When I started working in Ocean City, I lived about an hour away. I worked my full-time job in an office during the day, and for a couple of years I was hostess at a restaurant. Now, Ocean City between the months, I would say from November to March, all depending on the weather, Ocean City can be a completely different city in the two separate time frames. In the winter, on a good day, I may even may, may have even made the trip in 45 minutes. But once summer hit, it was not surprising for it to take me about 20 or 25 minutes to go two or three blocks. So it can be very, very crowded and very, very bustling during those summer months. Sometimes it was almost like you entered a different universe between summer and fall. Now, even in the professional building that I worked in, there were signs up stating, you know, the typical no shoes, no shirt, um, things like no public bathroom, but really the mood was tremendously laid back. And we pretty much ignored enforcing those signs as a courtesy to our guests, to the tourists that were in our town. So it was not surprising to see people in suits standing in the lobby with somebody in a swimsuit walking by. Now, Memorial Day weekend of 2002 was like so many other years. It signaled the start of the official summer season. Now, while there may have been early visitors prior to this date, Memorial Day was when the city changed from busy to bursting. Jeannie Crutchley was 51 years old at this point in 2002. She was an accountant who worked at an insurance company in Virginia and had been there about five years. She was great friends with her supervisor, Gloria. Now, Jeannie had been divorced, but overall, she was very happy in her life. She was outgoing and loved to be active. She was the epitome of the saying, age is just a number. And that's why when she met Josh Ford, age 32 at the time of this incident, in 1999, they gelled. It didn't matter about their age gap. They enjoyed each other's company and enjoyed the same activities. Now, as some have astutely recognized, if the roles had been reversed and Josh had been the older of the two, many people wouldn't have even batted an eyelash. But inevitably, when this story begins, some people may take a look at the age gap and raise an eyebrow. To some, the age gap, no matter who was older, could cause some concern. But with this couple, it worked. They were happy together, and so their loved one, ones were happy for them. Now, they had met at a party in Boston, actually, and Josh had lived there um, previously, but in 2001, they did move in together in a house in Fairfax, Virginia, which is where Jeannie was working for the insurance company. 
Now, Josh was a successful mortgage broker, and the move to Virginia did leave some heartbreak for him. He had an eight-year-old son from a previous marriage. Now, also, and just a warning, some of this description, even before we get into our case, can be a little graphic. His family had been dealing with a personal and unimaginable loss. Josh's brother, Mark, had a daughter named Kelly Ford. She had left a rehabilitation center one day to interview for a volunteer position. She had been doing very well in her treatment, but when she left the center that day, there was no way of knowing that nobody would ever see her again at that facility. Kelly had a four-year-old daughter, but she was later to be found buried in a shallow grave on Cape Cod, and her head was missing. Josh's family was trying to get through this the best they could, but there's really no roadmap or a playbook on how to do it after something like this. So they struggled daily, and they tried to forge forward. And this weekend may have been just a nice getaway to kick off the summer and try, even if it was just for a few days, to put aside the grief and the challenges that Josh and Jeannie had to deal with. Now, they had rented a condo at the Atlantis, and that's one of many different accommodations throughout the city. It was nice, but not quite as nice as some of the other condos, such as the Rainbow Condos. The Rainbow Condos were considered luxury condos, and in that building, Erica and BJ Seifert had rented a condo. Now, BJ's full name was Benjamin, but he did go by BJ. Erica was a former star basketball player in high school, even though she was really quite petite. She had really stood out in her three-point shooting especially, and her father, Gerald, who actually goes by Mitch for his middle name, did everything that a father could ever do to encourage his daughter to do something that she loved. She grew up in what many would consider to be an upper-middle-class family, and her mother, Charlotte, who was nicknamed Cookie, stayed at home. And their home life was, you know, really not conventional in some ways compared to others. For example, when Erica felt that she wasn't getting enough playing time on the basketball court in the city that they lived in, instead of trying to meet with the coaches to see what might be holding her back, or what she may be able to do in order to get more playing time, Mitch actually decided to move to a different town where she was more likely to get that playing time. So this really didn't teach Erica anything about conflict resolution. So once they moved, he also had half a basketball court built indoors so that she could practice no matter the weather. And she had always been an overachieving student too, so she graduated with honors and enrolled in Mary Washington College, where she was still really good at basketball for that school, but she didn't really stick out like she did in high school. The collegiate level was a totally different ball game, no pun intended. And while she did love the sport, it seemed like she went from being a big fish in a small pond to being a medium fish in a huge pond. In 1998, she met Benjamin, or B.J. Seifert. 
Not quite as much is known about his early life, but the first time that they met, Erica was instantly attracted. But BJ didn't quite return the feelings. He was only 20 years old, and he was working on becoming a Navy SEAL. Now, just to let you know, this is where some of the coverage may not get things entirely correct. While, yes, BJ was enrolled in the SEALs program and he was working towards that goal, he had not quite finished all of his classes. He had finished what's called a BUDS class or Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL class in 1997. And he didn't actually complete all of the requirements to get the designation of Navy SEAL. There were other things that he would have needed to do, such as receive what's called a Navy enlisted classification or to get the combatant swimmer SEAL designation. Now, after their first meeting, they did actually meet again. And this time, BJ was more open to spending time with her. After they had been together for a few months, Erica did phone up her father, and she started to talk about her and BJ getting married. Now, of course, he was pretty apprehensive because they had only known each other the few months, and their relationship was moving pretty rapidly. And what her parents did not know at the time was that they'd actually already gone to Las Vegas and gotten married. So... Eventually, of course, her parents did have to find this out, and her father decided to finance a two-month-long trip. BJ and Erica chose to go to South America. And on one podcast that I actually listen to quite frequently, it's called True Crime Brewery, um, one of the hosts actually did describe it as rewarding bad behavior. You know, they went behind his back, they weren't forthcoming in, you know, what they had actually done, but her father still went ahead and financed a two-month trip. Now, once, once that trip was over, Erica transferred her credits um, from Mary Washington College to Virginia Beach and lived off campus. However, BJ was sent away for some more training, and they just could not stand to be apart. So sometimes BJ would actually sneak Erica into his barracks. This was one of the things that eventually got BJ kicked out. Another issue in the relationship was that Erica and BJ really hadn't known each other that well before they got married. And it was the proverbial whirlwind romance, and BJ didn't see every side to Erica before tying the knot. He didn't see the OCD and the need that she had to have everything exactly where she wanted it. And she also had increasing anxiety if things were not exact. So while BJ did not receive his SEAL certifications, what he did receive was a less than honorable discharge. He had numerous disciplinary charges against him including going AWOL or absent without leave. He was insubordinate to superiors, and many would say his performance was lacking. He also wore things that he wasn't supposed to. Now, some other members of his class would describe him as someone who could go out all night and party 
and then be back in the early morning hours, get a couple of hours sleep, and then still go out and run and pretty much be able to perform like normal. But what some people may see as normal, some of the others who are in charge of the classes still may see as not acceptable. So after this, they began a two-month-long party spree, basically. They returned to Erica's hometown of Altoona, where her father financed a business for her. And this was opening a scrapbooking store. So once I go over some of the events of this particular crime, it will really seem like it's a big juxtaposition to think of scrapbooking and this case. Truly, these things do not seem like they could go together. Now, BJ did want to strike out on his own and you know, try to find a job somewhere else. But as he and Erica were beginning to live with each other, truly for the first time, he started to notice what some might call quirks to her behavior. And though these quirks, you know, really were a precursor of things to come, Erica was obsessive and some may even say had an addictive personality. As we previously reviewed, she did have anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. And she had this feeling that she always needed to be in control. Erica did admit that she had two other loves, Xanax and Valium. And she would actually snort them and combine them you know, possibly with alcohol or other, other substances. And this would you know, cause her already heightened sense of anxiety to just go off the charts. You know, this put Erica on edge much of the time. She did not want BJ to work anywhere else. She wanted to be able to keep an eye on him. So while she might be overbearing at times and controlling, BJ was also in a situation where Erica's family's wealth allowed him to live kind of a laid-back lifestyle. You know, one of the things that she also admitted that she was addicted to was jewelry. Now, as I said, her, you know, her home life was a little unconventional in ways, and in one of those ways was that her mother actually had jewelry display cases in their home. So when you walked in, you would actually see these display cases. So she did admittedly love some of the finer things in life, and this was sometimes contradictory to how she lived. But her parents did keep providing financial support. There was also one particular designer coach bag that she loved, and everything that she could ever need, according to her, could be contained in that bag. So... She had, of course, her Xanax and Valium, and she did not have a prescription for either of those. Um, she also loved tanning. And so actually on their trip to Ocean City, she got a tanning pass so that she could go tanning each day that they were in the resort town. Some, in some pictures, you can actually see the difference in her skin tone, and that will show the extent to which she really, really loved tanning. As they spent more time together, some of the exhilaration of the initial romance started to fade. And they were still very young, but they really yearned for some excitement and thrills. 
Erica also thought that their sex life had really started to fade as well. You know, BJ was no longer getting that thrill or exhilaration by being in the SEALs program, and Erica wanted to do everything to keep BJ happy. Now, for some reason, BJ got Erica a gun, a 357. Now, she took the gun with her everywhere. She would sometimes put it in the holster she had, sometimes keep it near her ankle, and sometimes the back of her pants. So to bring the spice back into their life, they actually combined some of their loves together. BJ's love of adrenaline and something else that Erica was obsessed with, which I personally struggled to understand, but she did love it, Hooters, the restaurant. You know, the sports bar where the women wear, you know, the little skippy outfits. And Erica was actually obsessed with the stuff that they sold in the gift shop. So, as BJ was now at home, he and Erica would actually go out and they would break into Hooters restaurants and steal not only the items from the gift shop, but pretty much whatever they could carry. They also robbed other smaller businesses throughout the community and then, in a show of extreme bravado, would actually sell the items on eBay. Now, at this time, just remember, it's 2002, so you know eBay really was the main platform um, if you wanted to sell something online. Now, also... They did not sell in Hooters the shirts or parts of the outfit that the waitresses did wear. So Erica did like to break in to see if she could get those shirts. And the love of Hooters would actually be this pair's downfall. And I never thought I'd say a sentence like that. So back to Memorial Day weekend in 2002, Jeannie Crutchley and Josh Ford were riding one of the local um, buses. And with the amount of traffic that flows through Ocean City and you know, also the surrounding towns, taking the bus or walking sometimes is the quickest method of getting somewhere. And also, as with a lot of cities that cater to tourists, especially on a holiday weekend, Ocean City had always made quite a few number of arrests and received a number of complaints that were based on being under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So Jeannie and Josh were young at heart, but they were you know, more mature than some of the other people that were there on the bus. And they felt and recognized the need to be safe. So in case either one of them had a few extra to drink, they could feel assured that they would get back safely, safely because they were taking the bus. Now, the bus had picked them up in front of their condo at the Atlantis and then later made a stop in front of the Rainbow Condos where Erica and BJ were staying. At this stop, the young couple entered the bus, and by pretty much all accounts, they were very drunk. They had supposedly had two pitchers of beer at Hooters, along with wings, and of course, before setting off on this journey, you know, they got a head start. But the buses in Ocean City require exact change. BJ only had a $5 bill on him, and it was looking kind of doubtful that they'd be able to catch the bus. As Jeannie and Josh were in the front seat, they could see 
you know, everything that was going on and whether this was done to be a good Samaritan or done because the older couple, you know, felt a little protective of the younger couple standing in front of the bus, Josh offered to pay for their fare. Now, BJ in turn said that he would buy them a drink once they made it to a bar. And when Josh and Jeannie asked if they were going to Secrets, and by the way, Secrets, which is a bar, is spelled S-E-A-C-R-E-T-S as a play on words. And that's when the pair thought, sure, they would go to Secrets. Now, I've been there once or twice. Um, I remember once was for a bridal shower, but it was kind of a, you know, a small bridal shower. Nothing too fancy or anything like that, of course. Just having a little bit of fun. Now, Secrets is on the bay side. And that means it's on the western side of Ocean City. Secrets is probably the best-known bar in Ocean City. And it's very activity-laden. There's just always buzzing around, it seems. A lot can be packed into the little building that it's in. But it also extends to the outside. Because if you're going to be at a beach that's as gorgeous as Ocean City's are, then you know you want to be there to enjoy it. Now, as with many popular nightclubs or bars, the line to get in was quite lengthy. They waited for approximately an hour to get in, and once they were, Erica just had this need to keep going. She was taking straight shots of vodka and was going back and forth to the bathroom or outside, and that was probably to take Xanax and Valium. And she was almost chasing that high. She would start to fall asleep, but then she would bounce back up and just be as frantic as she was before. It was almost exhausting to watch her. And BJ and Erica were kind of in on a secret of their own. They had gotten past security with Erica's gun in the waistband in the back of her pants. Erica told Jeannie that she was Bonnie to BJ's Clyde, but then she also added in some other information, such as they had pet pythons whose names were actually Bonnie and Clyde. They had a cobra and even a crocodile. One of the cobra's name was Hitler. So if you already had a really bad, bad feeling about BJ and Erica by this point, I think this pretty much solidifies it. Anybody who would name their pet snake Hitler. Now, Jeannie was worried about everything that she was observing going on. She could see that Erica was acting erratically, and she approached Erica about this. And when Erica started talking about everything else that she loved, she just started talking about her coach bag with all of her jewelry in it and guns and Xanax and everything else like that. So Jeannie was getting a really bad feeling, so she went to Josh about this. He didn't seem overly concerned. You know, there is certainly speculation as to the reason why, but Josh, Josh supposedly spent quite a bit of time with Erica in the bathroom um, between 10 and 15 minutes, and in that time, BJ actually kept Jeannie busy. It was known that Erica would really like to flirt, um, or to be more exact, sometimes proposition men 
that she met. So it's not known the exact reason, but BJ did know that they were in the bathroom together. Also, there is some speculation that they may have been doing drugs. So just to be clear, though, these are speculations. Um, there is really not a way to be sure other than knowing that, yes, they were in the bathroom together for more than just a few moments. Now, as the evening at Secrets was coming to an end, the two couples really weren't quite ready to call it a night. Now, as I said earlier, the condos at the Rainbow, um, specifically the penthouse, was quite luxurious. They had a hot tub as well, and that was something that Jeannie and Josh wouldn't mind sharing in. So Jeannie was coming around. Before they got back to the Rainbow, they decided to go to the Atlantis so that Jeannie and Josh could get their swimsuits. And then they decided to walk back to the Rainbow. They went along the beach, which you know was a nice way to you know, start the ending of the evening. When they made it back to the Rainbow condos, one of the things that Erica prided herself in was being extremely organized. So once they got back there, Erica said that she was missing her bag. You know, she also thought that things were out of place, and they all began to search for the missing bag. Now, she had the coach bag, of course, and also a Hooters bag. And she said that the jewels and, or jewelry that were in the coach bag were very important to her, and so it was extremely important that they find the bags. Then all of a sudden, Jeannie and Josh found themselves being accused of stealing the bag. BJ pulled out a gun, and things escalated very quickly. The Seaforts ordered Jeannie and Josh to get undressed. And when you're staring at a gun, you do what you're told. But while they did get undressed, they were able to run into the bathroom, close the door, and lock it. They looked frantically for a way out, with Josh trying to force his way out of the large window that was in the bathroom. But this window was also a detriment, as Erica could see through the window once she maneuvered around um, in the living room. She would tell BJ where to shoot, and he hit his target. So after hitting Josh through the door, he broke it down and shot him again. By this point, of course, Jeannie was terrified. She was begging for them to stop, but they weren't having any of it. Jeannie was shot by Erica, and Erica did not stop there. She grabbed a knife, and she stabbed Jeannie in the side twice. At 3.01 a.m. on the morning of the 26th, Erica called 911 but did not provide the address. She told them that they were, there were two people in her apartment and that she did not know them, and that her bag and jewelry were missing, and she was afraid they were being robbed. However, when the dispatcher was trying to transfer them to the police, Erica hung up, and unfortunately there was no follow-up. But what we do need to remember again is this was 2002. At that time, if Erica was using a cell phone, I'm not really sure how quickly they would have been able to get the position if they could get it at all in the short amount of time that 
she was on the phone. So BJ and Erica looked at the situation and realized they had to get things cleaned up. To say that things were a mess would be a considerable understatement. Okay, and again, this is a warning for the next couple of sentences. Erica went to get some bags and towels to try to clean up, and according to her, when she came back, BJ was naked in the hot tub with Jeannie and Josh's heads. Looking at the situation, you know, really they would have to do a lot of cleanup in a short time. The condo was a rental, so someone would be there pretty soon and they really needed to get the bathroom you know, cleaned up and try to get things as close to normal as they could. Someone else should be there to run it in about two days' time. And again, another warning about the next few sentences. Erica and BJ took some knives that they had actually bought for each other for Valentine's Day. And somehow using these knives, they managed to dismember the couple. Erica reported that in one case, BJ went to a bag that had Josh's leg in it and actually used some leverage pulling on it to snap the leg. Erica said that BJ also wanted her to cook and eat some of the leg, but she did not declined. So once all of these things were done, they took the trash bags over the state line into Delaware, which is really a short drive. I actually lived in Delaware when I worked in Ocean City. They went to a dumpster behind a local grocery store and you know, it would not really seem out of place to have that many garbage bags in a dumpster behind a grocery store. Also, within that same area at that time, there were other stores that may have even been using the same dumpster. The next day, they went to a hardware store and bought some things to fix up the bathroom, such as drywall, paint, cleaning supplies, and they even bought a new bathroom door. Now, you know, right now I'm trying to stick to the facts of the case or, in the case of Erica, things that she reported as part of the case. But my first thought when I heard that they bought a bathroom door was how exactly would they be able to get that up to the condo without anybody seeing it and wondering why two people who are renting the room are actually bringing up a new door and also were they able to get the exact match of a door there there was a bullet hole showing so that was definitely something they needed to replace but after doing all this they made their way back to secrets and they spent approximately 10 hours there they did not exactly try to regulate or measure their drinking so while there, they met a young man named Justin, who was getting about as drunk or more as BJ and Erica. Sometime during this meeting, it became apparent to security that Erica and BJ were just too heavily intoxicated to stay there. Now, earlier in the evening, security had actually caught BJ trying to pick the lock of an ATM there. They didn't call the police then. 
when they were eventually asked to leave, Erica snapped and she took out her gun in front of everyone. So this is an extremely intoxicated woman that by many accounts, nobody would even trust to drive a car as no one should when they're drunk. In this case, she actually had a gun that she was waving around and security again did not call the police. Nobody did. They gave her another chance and, you know, at this point then, they left with Justin. But on their way back to the Rainbow, they got a flat tire. Justin called his girlfriend, Melissa, and she came to help. Now, he reported that they were not able to change the tire on their own. Once Melissa got there, she realized that it wasn't really an issue with the tire or not having the right tools. It was just that they were entirely too drunk to change it. Melissa was able to do so, and Erica offered to buy her a drink. Melissa actually wanted to call a cab, but somehow they were able to convince her to go back um, to the Rainbow with them. So she finally relented, and she said she would follow them back. So Justin got in the car with Melissa and Erica with BJ. Now, when they got back to the Rainbow condos, before Melissa could leave, BJ came up to the window and said he needed help getting Erica back to the room. Justin, you know, heard this and he started opening the door but fell out. Um, you know, so he really was not going to be able to be of assistance to BJ. But just a reminder here, Every description of Erica says that she was very, very petite. BJ had been in the Navy and was quite strong. He probably could have handled taking Erica up to the room all on his own, but Melissa was accommodating and went back up with them. Now, Melissa would later recount that at times it was like a, a switch was flipped, that one moment they were drunk, the next sober. So the moment they got back up to the um, opening or the door of the condo, Erica was fine. She took the keys out of her bag and opened the door. So again, she just went from drunk to sober very quickly. Now, Erica went into the laundry room for something, but she noticed that the washer that was supposed to be taking care of the laundry that very much needed to be washed was not working. So... Again, warning before the next sentence. There was tissue and hair from Jeannie and Josh that had clogged up the washer. But this somehow did not really affect Erica. She begged for Melissa to stay. She said that she wanted to show her around the condo. And she also wanted to show her the jewelry, but she couldn't find her purse. This might sound vaguely familiar. So she told BJ they really had to find her purse because all of the important things were in there. And so everybody started to look for the bag. They had searched the main floor, so they went to the second floor. And at this time, because the bathroom was on this level, Melissa noticed that there was a hole in the bathroom door, which, by the way, the door was also off its hinges. And she thought that the hole could have been a bullet hole. But Erica started to think that possibly she had left the bag in the Jeep. 
and Melissa said she didn't think that was quite possible since Erica had the keys in her bag, and it was Erica who had opened the door. But just to appease her, Melissa went to the Jeep so they could rummage through it. One thought on this is Erica may have seen that she was looking at the door and wanted to get her away. Now, after going through the Jeep and, of course, not finding the bag, they went back up to the room, and at this time, BJ grabbed Melissa by the face. So picture, it's like he's gripping Melissa's face and telling her just how important it was to find the purse, and he had a gun out at this time. And Melissa knew that they were trying to imply that she or Justin had stolen the bag. She turned to Erica to try to get some help from her, but that just did not happen. Melissa said that she didn't like guns, but that did nothing either. In fact, Erica kind of mocked that sentiment that Melissa didn't like guns. Melissa did continue to assist, and BJ actually found the purse behind the cushion of a couch. Now, Melissa found this to be odd as she knew for a fact that the couch had been searched previously by her. And at this point, though, it sounded like Melissa was just pretty much ready to accept you know, the fact that it had been found and they left. Jeannie Crutchley was due back to work at her insurance company on Tuesday, May 29th. There was a monthly meeting that she needed to attend. And in all of the years that she had worked there, she'd never missed a meeting, much less, you know, did not attend a meeting without calling out. Gloria, who was her boss, but actually a really good friend, knew that this was not right. When she couldn't get in touch with Jeannie, she actually called Jeannie's mom, um, or I'm sorry, she actually went to Jeannie's mom's house to see if she knew anything, but she didn't. Gloria ended up filing a missing persons report with the Fairfax police. The repairs on BJ's and Erica's condo would need to be made rather quickly as they would need to check out within a two-day time frame. But instead of starting to work ferociously, trying to get everything cleaned up, Erica used her week-long tanning pass that she had bought to go tanning, and BJ went to have beer and wings at, where else, Hooters. But this didn't really turn out as planned because when Erica went there to meet him after tanning, he, he had become sick. So back at the condo, he napped instead of fixing, fixing the door. Now, Detective Scott Brunell took the missing person's call from Fairfax PD. He made his way with an officer to the Atlantis, and he quickly found Jeannie's car. Now, even just from an external inspection, he could tell that it hadn't been moved for at least a couple of days. Sand tends to migrate everywhere in Ocean City. So there was just sand all around the car that wasn't disturbed. So he had the car towed for processing, and he went up to their room to check it out and see what was there. He saw that everything was still there. That includes Jeannie's purse, a computer that was laying out, clothes, toiletries, you name it. This couple had not left that room, intending to go back to Fairfax. There were also four wine glasses out. Now, Detective Brunel's captain didn't necessarily think that, you know, the case was that urgent, but 
the detective was concerned. You know, he made sure that he contacted both the Maryland and Delaware State Police to have them be on the lookout for Jeannie and Josh. Later that night, Erica and BJ went to a popular bar, the Green Turtle, which has a few locations throughout Delmarva, and I've been to a couple of them, usually just to celebrate a birthday or something like that. I've also known people who've worked there, and really the food and camaraderie there is pretty welcoming. And on this night, the 29th, BJ and Erica saw something posted as they were entering. It was a missing persons poster. We can guess who that poster was for. And what makes it really chilling is that there's video showing Erica smiling and BJ having no reaction at all. So after yet another drink, another night of drinking and partying with absolutely no cares in the world, it seems, they left the green turtle and stopped at Hooters on the way home. But yeah, Hooters wasn't exactly open. Now, this particular Hooters, I used to work across from, from that store. Um, I would occasionally stop by another um, restaurant, a fast food restaurant that was pretty close to it. And sometimes when I was passing it, I would actually think of this case. A police officer was making his normal rounds. Then a silent alarm was tripped. So he headed to Hooters in time to see Erica getting into a Jeep and BJ about to get in. There was stolen property just laid out. The officer was about to get a lot more than he bargained for. He called in for backup and was handcuffing them when BJ asked if they could just put everything back and pretty much forget about it. Uh, the cop wasn't really into doing that. Um, but we also have to remember that he was drunk, so he probably was not thinking quite logically. Oh, and he also had two guns with extra ammo on him. Probably another reason he just wanted to forget the whole thing. Now, Erica was sitting on the curb and she was starting to have that anxiety build up in her. So she told the officer that she had anxiety and desperately needed her medicine. And that was in her ever-present bag. Now, at this point in time, she had had her last Xanax about 30 minutes prior you know, but the officer didn't have a way of knowing that. So he did go to her bag to get the medicine that she requested. And while looking for it, he found, you know, normal articles that you would find in a purse. But he also found unlabeled medication, four spent 357 shells, and the IDs of two people that they'd been looking for all day. As things became apparent that this was not your typical run-of-the-mill Hooters robbery, the police captain took over, aided by the detectives that had already been working the case. Flex cuffs were found among BJ and Erica's items, so exigent circumstances allowed them to enter their condo without a warrant. They were looking at this imminent threat that possibly Jeannie and Josh could still be in there and be in danger. They held out that hope that they could still be found alive. But when they entered the condo, they found two spent rounds on a table along with a cooler full of snakes. Again, another sentence I really didn't think I'd ever say. Honestly, when Erica had said earlier that they had brought some of the snakes with them, I thought that she was being a little liberal with the truth, but apparently not. 
but the bullets did give the police probable cause to get a warrant, and they could then start to look for things that were not in plain sight. So a forensic team was also called in to process the scene. The bathroom had been cleaned somewhat, but when there's blood from a murder and dismemberment of two people, there's really only so much that two people can do with cleaning supplies they just buy from a local store. And also, since BJ and Erica had scattered time throughout their drinking to clean, it really was not thorough. The tile grout was stained, stained orange, and this was because of the blood. Forensic investigators used DNA from Jeannie and Josh's toothbrushes to compare, and it was their blood staining the floor. They also did find that a pool of blood had run under the vanity, and also one of the mattresses had a large blood stain on it. A palm print was pulled from the large window in the bathroom, and that was found to be Josh's. This case has stayed with many of the officers that investigated it because of the brutality. Again, warning about the next description. When the drain stopper was pulled from the bathtub, it was covered in hair and tissue. They also discovered that not only was the washer not working because it was clogged with hair and tissue as well, but so was the lint trap and the dryer. So unlike Bonnie and Clyde who stuck together to the end, this star-crossed couple did what many other couples before them would do in this situation. They turned on each other. So appearances can be deceiving and the petite Erica was first to talk, taking a plea for a lighter sentence if she told the truth. And she led investigators to the dumpster that they used to put the remains of Jeannie and Josh. And she was going to testify against BJ. The way she described it, she had only helped to dispose of the bodies, but she had not actually participated in the killings. Now, the investigators needed to find the bodies, not only to see what kind of forensic evidence they could find, but to bring whatever sense of closure that the Crutchley and Ford families could find, especially in the wake of Mark Ford losing his daughter in such a gruesome way less than the year prior. Now, I can attest that the landfill can be quite overwhelming on the sense of smell in the summer. There was, and I'm not sure if it's still there, also a farm next to the landfill and that used to have pigs and that also would mix with it and that was you know, something you definitely remember. Now, I do have to say as a coincidence, my dad actually was the brick mason who built that house. So I also passed by the landfill every day for about eight years while I worked at a, another position in Delaware. Now, after all of the efforts that the searchers put in, they were only able to recover Jeannie's left leg. They were able to recover the torso and both arms of Josh Ford. Josh had been shot in the torso twice, and the investigators were able to recover two bullets. 
Erica had to sign something called a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU. I looked up the definition and what this is, and I quote, a document that describes the broad outlines of an agreement that two or more parties have reached. MOUs communicate the mutually accepted expectation of all parties involved in a negotiation. While not legally binding, the MOU signals that a binding contract is imminent, end quote. One of the conditions of the plea, which stated that the prosecution would not seek the death penalty or life imprisonment, was that Erica had to take a polygraph test and pass. Now, there are pre-polygraph interviews that are given, and during Erica's, she described an entirely different role that she had previously done before. She admitted to killing Jeannie. After she had shot Jeannie, she took the knife and stabbed her twice in the side of the stomach. And this just happened to be the same place that Erica had found time to get a new tattoo of a snake. It was a gift to herself, a trophy to remind her of all the time that she was a killer. Now, there were petitions made by each defendant to hold the trials in different counties. The couple would be tried separately, and Erica's trial moved to Frederick and BJ's to Rockville. Now, you may be asking about Erica's plea, but because she had lied to investigators during the previous interviews, that voided the MOU. The MOU was put in place dependent on certain conditions, and since she had lied, that MOU then was not honored. I think Erica might have thought things would go like they'd always gone for her, that her father could just find a way to, you know, snap his fingers and make everything fine for her. But this was not something that she could buy her way out of, or more exactly, her father could buy her way out of. So she was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Josh and second-degree for Jeannie. So she received life plus 20 for these two and 18 months for theft. Now, everyone may need to take just a deep breath right here. But BJ was found guilty of second-degree murder and first-degree assault in Jeannie's death and was sentenced to 38 years. He was acquitted of all culpability in the death of Josh. The 357 that Josh was killed with was linked only to Erica. She had also taken pictures, or there had been pictures taken, with Erica wearing one of Josh's rings around her neck, hanging from a necklace. She also had the IDs in her bag, so there was actually no physical evidence that would tie BJ to Josh's murder. Even though he had stated he was the one who shot him, the 357 was Erica's. Now, of course, the normal rounds of appeals, they were to be had, and you know they weren't the only things that were filed. BJ filed for divorce in 2010, and he was granted this. Now, again, warning you to take a deep breath, BJ will be eligible for parole sometime this year, 2021, this year. This case took place in 2002. Erica will be eligible for parole 
in 2024. So three years from now. The judge called BJ a butcher. So hopefully the parole board will take a look at the judge's comments and agree and not let him out. Because, you know, personally, I don't think a person can change that much when they have committed such vile acts. And so now we know the facts. And I have given some of my thoughts, you know, where I thought appropriate throughout the, the case. Now, this was the early 2000s. This was a kind of transition period from, you know, say, doing things a little more manually to computers, from a sense of naivety to apprehension. This is what I tell myself when I think about this case, you know, that in 2002, there was still this sense of innocence, that people weren't as aware of all the dangers. But really, that was not that long ago. And while the internet was not, you know, immediately available to tell everyone exactly what was going on in like real time news, it was still around. It yes was a little slower. We didn't have smartphones that were at the tips of our fingers. But even if I want to try to look at this and say it was a more naive time, I have to really accept that it was not. That people, there are always people who commit horrendous acts. And this was one of those cases. Now, before I go further, I just want to say that if you are listening to this on a platform that allows comments, um, please make sure that we keep our comments civil just in case anybody who knows any of the parties involved reads this. Plus, you know, comment sections should be used as a forum to express ideas, but also do it in a respectful manner. Now, what some people may start to think is, why did Josh and Jeannie, Melissa and Justin, stay when there were signs of trouble? You know, Erica had admitted that she had had a gun. They knew this. They also knew that she had a snake named Hitler. Now, for me, that would be enough to just send me packing. But I have the advantage of hindsight. By nature, I'm someone who wants to take care of other people in a lot of ways. So even though I may have looked at the situation and worried about, you know, them staying safe, like not falling while they were drunk, I, I do think that the snake named Hitler might have been just enough to to say, okay, that's the limit. That's where I have to, you know, say that I'm leaving. But also, when people go on vacation, we sometimes don't think that we can fall into any danger. But we can. For Jeannie and Josh, I think they almost felt parental towards BJ and Erica. You know, BJ and Erica were younger, they were a little more erratic, but Jeannie and Josh seemed to want to genuinely help them. Now, I can't say why Melissa stayed. Justin was probably too inebriated to really make any type of decision based on all accounts. And maybe that was Melissa's reason for staying. Or it could have just been the presumption that there was a woman in the pair. And, you know, even today sometimes, People will look at 
a woman and assume that she's not quite as violent as a man. That is not always the case. So Melissa may have felt more comfortable knowing that there was a woman there with her, but she did not know that that woman had just cut a swath of carnage basically across Delmarva. Now, in my opinion, Erica was the driving force. And when she met BJ, it created this perfect storm where one person had this need to control everything and to get what she wanted no matter the cost. And the other person was trying to balance a need to achieve with having the heart of a rebel. With many couples, a question is often asked that if they never met, would they have killed individually? And my opinion, I actually think they would have. BJ lacked discipline, which is something that's greatly needed to be a Navy SEAL. He had the drive, he had the physical prowess, but that was overpowered by this immaturity that he was not able to overcome. He needed a rush. And while the goal of being a SEAL was a rush in itself, when a mission was complete, he wouldn't feel that thrill again until the next one. He needed the rush more often than he could get from that position. Now, as to whether or not Erica would have killed if she hadn't met BJ, I don't know if she would have actively, actively participated in the crime, but I do think she would have played a role. You know, if she didn't actually kill someone herself, she would have been a manipulator, I think. So either way, I think she had it in her to, to be part of a murder or part of any crime that gave her some type of control. And when she manipulated someone, she was in control. And also, what more control can someone have than having the power over life and death? Now, as to motive, it was basically thrills, and at least that's the only possible reason that most anyone can come up with. I have to wonder if the rapid change in lifestyle for BJ just kind of propelled this crime spree. He was used to adrenaline and pushing himself to the limit each day when trying to become a SEAL, but then he went to work at a, at a scrapbooking store. I mean, you have heart-thumping action compared to pretty much a craft store. And, you know, once Erica really wanted to bring the spice back into their sex life, you know, they just started this crime spree. It was that thrill that got BJ to become more exhilarated. And I mean, there were even times that it was reported he would run from police go over 100 miles per hour, and actually end up outrunning the police. And just as in a lot of things in life, his crimes just went through this progression. You know, he started out smaller until he committed the ultimate crime. Now, one of the biggest mysteries in this case is, why did BJ find the purse? Erica admitted later that the purse charade had been a game. If their potential victim found the purse, they lived. If they didn't, they would die. So given the brutality that befell Jeannie and Josh, why did BJ find the purse freeing Melissa and Justin to leave? This is my thought. In one of his moments of sanity, 
he actually looked around and saw the sheer amount of work that they would need to do to try to make the room presentable for the next tourists. And he knew that they couldn't add more work and that they needed to get the couple that was in their room out as quickly as possible. Now, I have no proof of this, but it's the only thing that makes any sense to me. And as for the 911 call that Erica made that that morning, it's thought that she did that as a way to kind of cover their tracks. That way, if anybody reported hearing gunshots, there would be a 911 call on record stating that someone had felt that there was going to be a robbery and she would you know, try to make up a convincing story, I guess, from there. Now, Erica would say that BJ had told her to take pictures throughout um, the weekend. Now, these photos served as evidence against them in you know, some cases, such as the ring that Erica was wearing around their neck. When she was talking to Melissa, she made it sound like BJ was controlling, maybe even abusive at times and that she just wanted to keep him happy. But I'm, I don't think this was the case. She may have wanted to keep him happy to a certain degree, but by doing so, by doing what he wanted, Erica ensured that she would have the undying love to come back to her each night. And something that Erica had alluded to about her home life, and this is just what she said, was that her mother and father had such a perfect bond or match, and she felt the pressure to pick just the right person. Now, I think we can safely say that she did not do this. And I'm not a therapist, or I don't hold any expertise in any type of behavioral science, but I have to wonder how much her parents' doting or spoiling, and some may say enabling, had a role in these events. She wasn't taught how to problem solve. You know, you don't get enough time playing on the court, move to a town that will give you more. You want something shiny and expensive like your mother? Here you go. She did not have patience. She wanted someone who would give her something when she wanted it, no matter what. And she wanted more excitement. Though it would be easy to say that BJ was the dominant one in the relationship, Erica controlled the purse strings through her father by not letting BJ get a job outside of the scrapbooking business. She might have seemed like the loving, doting wife who didn't want to be without her husband, but she was actually manipulating the situation. So as with so many cases that are described as sensational or unusual, emphasis is placed on the lives of the perpetrators. And there was so little that I could find about Jeannie. Her life should be remembered more. And so should Josh's. Not Erica and BJ's. But for those that follow true crime, I have to wonder how many know about the secrets if they hear their names, if they would recognize them. But I wonder also would they recognize Josh and Jeannie's. I think there would be a better chance that people would recognize Erica and BJ's names. You know, this case had a lot of key points that made it memorable. There was the vacation, you know, leaving their cares behind and not thinking anything would happen. 
there was what happened to Josh's niece not more than a year ago and him just trying to move on with his life and trying to get away. There was the wealth that Erica's family had, that she was an overachiever and BJ had the potential of being a seal. You know, there were crimes committed for no other reason, though, but to catch a thrill, to catch an adrenaline rush. And the absolute absurdity of an obsession with hooters. But the key factor that I find is that two people spent their last few moments in terror. I wonder if in that brief fraction of a second before he was shot, if Josh thought, I won't be able to help Jeannie. And Jeannie, seeing that the love of her life was dying in front of her, knowing that she was next and was caught within the confines of a bathroom, if she had a fraction of a second to realize that she would never see her loved ones again and they would never see her. So many families were destroyed. Josh's son lost his father, a young child who will not know what it's like for his father to teach him to drive to take him on trips and spend that quality time together. Jeannie's loved ones have to know the circumstances that took her away from them and the disregard that the Seaforts felt towards Jeannie. And we may not think much about what BJ's and Erica's families have to go through, but they do suffer as well. Our first reaction might be that Erica's family spoiled her, enabled her, and that she learned how to manipulate people and situations were with ease because of this. That Erica didn't see limits. Whatever she wanted, someone got for her. But really, any parent wants their child to succeed. They want them to do their best. And if they have a way of making it happen, most parents will do that. And again, hindsight is twenty twenty. So her parents never, ever imagined, I'm sure, that their daughter would be able to do this to other people. BJ was a walking contradiction of discipline and rebellion, and he could manipulate a situation perfectly well on his own without Erica's help. But they manipulated each other. And I think that they knew they were being manipulated, and they just kind of fed off each other. Eric wouldn't let him work outside the shop, and he didn't care. She wanted an exciting sex life, and BJ only got a thrill when he was committing a crime. So in this sense, again, they were manipulating each other, and the end result was lethal. A detective from the case said that one was a match and the other the fuse. And I think that is a very apt description. Erica also, given her petite frame, seemed to have this way of making people think that she was harmless, though in many cases she was probably the most dangerous person in the room. And what can we take away from this? There could be a number of just platitudes that I could say, like, looks can be deceiving, or never let your guard down. And while these are repeated often, and they do hold true in most cases, it does emphasize the need to recognize when someone needs help, either with substance abuse or mental health. Now, by this, I don't mean that Erica shouldn't be held accountable. 
she most definitely should. So many other people who have mental health concerns, including myself, don't harm others. It doesn't even cross our minds to do so. I mean, as a parent myself, I could never, ever imagine having something happen to my child. I think the vast majority of everybody cannot imagine doing anything that even comes close to what Erica and BJ did. But Erica had never been given limits and doing everything that she could to get what she wanted when she wanted. And she was never able to learn how to proper, properly deal with any type of rejection and how to deal with her emotions. She actually kind of molded herself into the other person's needs. And in this case, she met someone just as dangerous as she was. We could say that her parents let her down, that by enabling her and giving her everything she desired, they didn't raise someone able to deal with the ebbs and flows of everyday life. And that led her down this path. But every day, there are millions and millions of parents who do everything that they can to help their child, and that child does not go out and commit crimes such as this. Now, saying that looks can be deceiving or never let your guard down, to me, this can almost sound like victim blaming, that they put themselves in this position. But putting your trust in someone should not lead to a death sentence. Helping out some people on a bus should not lead to the end of your life. There are true monsters that live in this world. And I don't think many of us really want to accept that. But monsters just don't live in mythology. These monsters look like everyone else. They blend in, they can charm us, and they can lead us down a wrong path that we can't come back from. So when I say that looks can be deceiving, and never let your guard down, I'll put the blame on the monsters, that they should not be, well, the monsters that they are, that they should not put others in a situation that they cannot put their guard down. So again, asking ourselves, what can we take from this? Sometimes there's not this glowing moral at the end of a story that we can say, this is what we need to do, and this is how we should act. Sometimes we just have to take away from it that there are some people out there who hurt people. There are some people out there who don't have a regard for other people's lives. And sometimes at the end of an investigation, we just have to realize that the monsters walk among us dressed in sheep's clothing. Thank you so much for making it with me to the end of this episode. It was quite long, but when I thought about splitting it up into two, I didn't really think that there was a good place to stop. And as I do put my episodes out every two weeks, I didn't want there to be this two-week gap. So thank you again for staying with me for this whole hour and around 15 minutes. I really appreciate that. If you do want to get in contact with me, if you have any ideas about cases, my Facebook and email address are listed in the description of the podcast. I did just start up a Twitter for, um, for the podcast, so 
I will also get the link to leave that in there. Probably the quickest way um, would be Twitter um, in order if you have a case suggestion or anything like that. And if you are new to this podcast, I do put episodes out approximately every two weeks. Sometimes if there were smaller ongoing cases in the area, I will do once a week um, giving an update or giving information on that current case. But I also do cover not just true crime, but other types of natural or man-made disasters. So until next time, everyone have a good couple of weeks. Please take care of yourself and stay safe. I will talk to you later. Bye.